So welcome to The Mystic. So I'm Dr. Scott Morris with Church Health, and I am joined here at Crosstown Concourse with Reverend Lillian Lammers and Reverend Joshua Narciss. Um, it's a smaller, intimate group today, um, but we are going to do this like we do once a month, and we are so glad you're with us. So if you're listening for the first time, you might be asking the question, so what is the mystic? Well, it's not Muslim prayers on Friday, Jewish prayers on Saturday, or Christian prayers on Sunday. The mystic is a catalyst. Through music, story, silence, and dialogue, we hope to strengthen our attachment to hopes and dreams. In the mystic, diversity is a prerequisite for all creativity which is why Crosstown Concourse is the perfect home. In the mystic, the world is far better served by the different beliefs than it could ever be if limited by rigid uniformity. And even if this doesn't rock your gypsy soul, the goal of the mystic is to not feel better, but get better at feeling. I ask that we are filled with the strength to open our hearts and treasure the differences that distinguishes us. And may the music of compassion, kindness, spirit, and insight fill this hour. Welcome to The Mystic. We were born before the wind. So much younger than the sun Ever the bonded boat was worn Into the mystic I hard now hear sailors cry Taste the sky Let your soul and spirit fly Into the mystic And when that fog home blows I will be coming home When that fog home whistle blows, 
I wanna hear it. I don't wanna fear it. I wanna rock your gypsy soul. Just like days ago. And magnificently we will flow into the mystic. When that fog home blows, I will be coming home. When that fog home whistle blows, I wanna hear it. I don't wanna fear it. I wanna rock your gypsy soul. Just like days of old And magnificently we will flow Into the mystic And magnificently we will flow Into the mystic All right, so welcome everyone. I had the honor of choosing our topic for today, and um, we're going with the theme of owning our stories. And um, I found an article from 2018 that was written by Brene Brown, who I am a very big fan of. She is uh, an academic in the field of social work who has gained a lot of popularity, um, and her focus is on shame, vulnerability, and human connection. And she wrote this little article back in 2018 called In You Must Go, Harnessing the Force by Owning Our Stories. So it ties in part of um, a Star Wars scene, which I'm a pretty big Star Wars dork. Um, so I certainly appreciate hey, hey, I that. I went to the original Star Wars movie when I was in college. So uh, Is that right? Before you were born, Lillian. So, uh, All right. So you, you're an OG. I got it. <laughs> I, don't even, I don't even know what that means, OG. So. <laughs> you are an original fan. Oh, okay. Um, so uh, she alludes to this scene from Return of the Jedi where Luke is on a planet with Yoda, and Yoda is training him to become a Jedi. And they're they're out in a swamp doing training activities, and all of a sudden, a funny look comes over Luke's face, and he points at a cave, and he says, something's not right. I sense cold death in this place. And um, Yoda essentially says to him, well, in you must go and tells him he doesn't need to take his weapons with him. And so Luke goes into this cave, and as he enters, he meets Darth Vader. And they both draw their lightsabers, um, and Luke uh, kills him. He cuts off his head, and then when he approaches the head on the ground, the mask is up, and it's his own face that he sees. Um, and so she uses this to talk about how that 
is the perfect analogy for owning the entirety of our stories, that so often we we carry with us pieces of our stories that we are not proud of, that, that are sources of shame or our stories that maybe seem like failure, um, but that to be true to ourselves is to own the whole of our stories. And so looking at this theme of this episode of The Mystic of Owning Our Stories, um, I, I guess I, I wanted to talk a little bit about what that maybe looks like for us and what the value is in in owning those moments uh, that maybe seem like failures to us. Because one thing is true, 100% of us have failure as part of our story, whether it's a test or a project or a job, a competition, a relationship. Somewhere along the line, there is failure in our stories. Uh, and she notes that what makes these moments hard for us to face and to integrate into our whole stories of who we are is not the failure itself, but what we add to those stories. That so often we take those stories and we assign value to them and we add in you know, that these moments say something negative about us or that they make others perceive us more negatively. Um, so we give power to those stories that maybe doesn't have to be there. Uh, when, and then we try to discard them or hide them under the rug. And then we become more fragmented and we don't own the whole of our history and the whole of our stories. So to kind of open up our conversation, I wanted to ask each of you, Tell me a little bit about a time that maybe you failed at something um, or something didn't go the way that that you hoped it would and how maybe naming that story and owning that story actually shares a little bit about how that experience helped to shape the person that you are. Well, first and foremost, you're talking to two Enneagram threes, so <laughs> failure is not something that we do. <laughs> or at least, or maybe I should speak for myself, right? Failure is not something that I like to dwell on um, mm -hmm. and dwell in. And even in thinking about um, broadly the conversation and trying to cast for a story in which I failed or um, had that struggle or whatever the um, whatever way I want to frame it, right? I immediately started thinking about, well, how do I tell that story in a way that makes me look more positive. Well, I had this failure, but it taught me to do this, and that's why I'm able to. And so somehow I have to save face, and I have to make the story meaningful. Mm -hmm. um, I like this, Josh. Well, I like where you're going. So keep... <laughs> as another Enneagram 3, I, I, I get your point here. Like there's, there's Because it's that kind of vulnerability, that awkwardness, that exposing, that says that I am that I'm not as perfect as I proclaim to be. Um, that there's a whole train of thought that can have us talking about the, the delusions that social media puts us under, but won't go down that road, at least not yet. Um, but by owning our failures and publicly admitting them and telling them as part of the story doesn't allow us to have a cute packaged narrative by which we can build um, and sell ourselves or sell experiences, right? But because we can't smooth over the rough places. Um, but to the question at hand, because I've been avoiding it, um, <laughs> I don't have one that comes to mind of a real, a really serious failure. I think the one that haunts me the most pastorally is when I drop the ball in terms of being present. Mm. Um, 
the just one that comes to mind is just the holidays got the best of me. I'd been meeting regularly with a staff member, um, uh, and the holidays came between Advent and Christmas and New Year's and just all the things that were happening. It just kind of fell off my calendar. They themselves are already really busy, and so it was kind of on me to keep making sure that they were sticking with the plan we had set out. And I just didn't have the capacity to message them, make sure that we were um, meeting uh, every week. And so I, you know, had my mea culpa moment and reached back out to them. Um, and now we're kind of back on track. But the, I, but I never tell the story of how I dropped the ball when it comes to, as a minister, part of the job is being present. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'm not present. Yeah. Sometimes I make the bereavement call a few days too late, mm-hmm. right? Or at least less comfortable than I would uh, prefer to have made it. Um, sometimes I don't follow up with the conversation. Sometimes I, I don't. I'm not as present as I should be. Um, and that is a, a guilt that I carry um, from situation to situation. But I don't talk about it, mm-hmm. right? I talk about all the other things or all, all, all the other ways I get to show up. Um, so yeah, who do a, a low-level one to begin with? Well, I mean, I, I, I just want to say I appreciate because anybody who's ever been in any sort of ministerial role knows what that feels like, mm-hmm. to feel like you don't have the bandwidth or ability to show up the way that maybe you feel like you should mm-hmm. in a particular moment, and it may or may not be through any fault of your own. Um, but the the need for us to extend grace to ourselves as much as we talk about extending it to other people is perhaps oh, yeah. a, a, a profound learning in that reality. Yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah so I'm a, a lot older than both of y'all. And so I've had a, a lot more experience at failure than, than either one of you have. And um, and yet, you know, I'm not sure talking on the radio is the time I want to just expose everything that has been a failure in my <laughs> life. But, um, you know, the failures I think about here, you know, come from, you know, sort of failures professionally. And, and then there are those personal failures in, in my own life for various reasons. Um, you know, one that I think I am willing to talk about right here, which is, you know, goes back many, many years here, but it's one of those things you never sort of ever get beyond, which is, um, so my, my mother, uh, developed ovarian cancer when I was a senior in high school. And, you know, at the time, you know, the doctors, you know, unfortunately told my father and I that she was going to live to be for for 10 more years, which was never going to happen. And then uh, as she was clearly dying, uh, really at the very end of her life, uh, I knew that she was, things were not right. And then my father, really with the advice of the doctor, sort of sent me off to go to a movie. Mm. And the bottom line is my mother died when I'm at this movie. And I have, like, for the last 50 years, you know, mm. sort of asked myself, you know, I knew that this was not right. I didn't know that she was going to die while I was at the movie. But, um, you know, it has felt like this, you know, incredibly personal failure that I, I, mm. I wasn't at my mother's side when she took her last breath. And, um, you know, yeah. you just, I don't think you ever just find a way to completely forgive yourself over mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. Never. I mean, it's 
I don't have a similar story. I mean, I was in Memphis. He was in New York, and we had a fractured relationship. But I was quite literally on our Friday call uh, speaking to folks who I've come to love and admire um, and who had been pushing back just the very either trying to call them or contact them, right, to clear the air because I, in the sense and that that instinct that this could, something isn't right, um, and, and by not right meaning there's, time feels like it's rolling up or it's winding up um, and just kept putting it off because of not wanting to put myself in a position of having to say, I forgive you um, because forgiveness does require a kind of strength um, and, a, and a letting go of what I know that you can never repay me um, and honoring and, and turning to a place of honoring the fact that for better or worse, you're my father, right? I exist in part because you exist and just kept putting off that call. And then finally, you know, messaging um, a family member and saying, hey, can you get a phone to him or can you get the message to him and saying, actually, he died at so-and-so time wow. when I was sitting on the meeting, right? And so there's, you're right, You will. I will never get, quote-unquote, past it, over it. That will always be something that I carry with me. And there's nothing um, you could have done. And, I mean, yeah. he was in New York. You were here. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was in ICU, on the ventilator, right? There's nothing I, there's literally nothing I could have done. Yeah. But the story we tell us from ourselves from that experience is if I had just done something different, if I had just been a little quicker, if I had just been less full of myself, um, back to the idea of you saying the meaning we put to the stories, uh, we can allow it to hold ourselves, uh, allow the stories to hold us hostage. Um, and there's been some unlearning of that over the past year or so, but there's a part of me that will always carry it. Mm-hmm. Um, always. Yeah. yeah. Well, and Josh and I both joke here at some level about being Enneagram threes, mm-hmm. which everybody listening may not even know what the Enneagram is, but um you know, we both have this strong ability to find positive out of things that are negative. I, just from the church health perspective, you know, I feel that I am a professional beggar in life and that having to raise a lot of money to keep our doors open. Um, but I know that there have been many times that I have failed a- as a fundraiser where I would have gone and asked people to support us financially. But I truly am not able to name five times when that happened. Because once it happens, I just put it out of my head and, and move on to the next time. But, you know, I'm not, I don't know if that's a healthy thing or not, mm. um, that that I am endlessly looking at just the positive of, of all of this because it it's not necessarily the reality. Yeah. Well, that's that's actually a great segue into my next question, which is, what happens to us if we refuse to face the more challenging parts of our story? In other words, what is lost if we refuse to enter the cave like Luke and face our own fears about ourselves? Yeah, big silence there. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, there's an element, I think, for most of us, we want to say, well, well, nothing's lost. We want to keep the uh, the cave over there. And um, that don't want to go in it, even if we're facing the true um, Darth Vader. Um, and to think that that Darth Vader is part of us, um, you know, I, 
I think this is a question that it's really hard for any of us to want to confront because, um, you know, it's it it, it changes the, our narrative, which for for me is needs to always sort of have some sort of positive outcome. Um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a part of my answer is unformed. That my thought is, if we don't do face the challenges, we never know our limitedness, mm. right? So we have to test those boundaries, test the limits, um, in a sense to be able to index where we are, not only in life, but where we are within ourselves. Um, but there's also a way in which we don't allow ourselves to become a fully realizing, unified being. Mm-hmm. Um, when we talk about the fragmentary nature that we can live into as we, if we only tell part of the story we rob ourselves of the full experience of being who we are because mm-hmm. we only tell those parts of the story that we're comfortable with right um which means that we only get comfortable with the good parts and are never able to fully process what hurts what is broken when seasons of life are deeply uncertain and are deeply uncomfortable, we never really, we never figure out how to sit with that. Um, and well, so, well, how do you get comfortable sitting with that? I mean, you I, sit with it. I mean, <laughs> there's, I think there, there it requires courage. Um, when it's uncomfortable, when you're, so the way I think about it, because it's most near, and we had this conversation uh, last month around grief, right? You cannot just try to run out of your grief. You can't just try to avoid it. You have to find a way to confront it, to face it head on, and to be able to articulate for yourself or think for yourself or um, emote for yourself, whatever that your way of processing is. I am in sitting with sorrow. I am sorrowful. And this is a legitimate part of what it means for me to exist as me being really happy and productive and fruitful and in a relationship is also a legitimate part of how I exist. And I don't have to feel bad about um, or guilty about or ashamed about the fact that I'm sorrowful. And in the same sense, um, this failure is a part of who I am and this failure hurts and there are consequences to it that I may not be able to uh, brush off. There are consequences that will be with me for years. And this is now part of who I am. And I don't have to be ashamed of it. I have to learn how to love it as I love the parts of me that I'm comfortable with. Well, I do think this um, story of Darth Vader and uh, and Luke is not just about those failures, but it's also a recognition that who Darth Vader is is part of who Luke is, mm-hmm. and I don't think any of us want to uh, embrace that and say that there is an element of, of who we are intrinsically that has that sort of deep, dark side. Mm. Um, and yet, as he learned in learning how to use the force, the force can be used for for good or evil. <laughs> and he was on that journey. Um, I 
I think when I when I think about this question of what is lost, um, so when I when I was in my early 30s, I I had a relationship that ended, and it it felt like a big failure, and it was you know I was a newly ordained pastor, and I think one of the things that I discovered was that the experience of struggle um, with you know, what do I believe about myself now that this has happened? And was this my fault? And 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 just this this being in this place of struggle and despair, I actually found that it helped my faith journey. Mm. I mean, how much of the Bible is talking about times of struggle? I mean, half the Psalms mm-hmm. are. Um, so I I found myself actually feeling like, oh, this is part of the range of human experience. Is not only feeling strong and successful and smart, but feeling in a place of, I can't get things to go right. And I'm, I'm, I'm crying out. Um, and so I, I actually found that, that having a, a story that I certainly don't like to dwell on, you know, it's a sad time in my life, but, um, it was, it was so instrumental in helping me to understand more about the life of my faith and, and, the whole of human experience. Yeah. And so I, I, in that way, I'm grateful for incorporating that into... So, so in the moment when this is happening, would you have said that? Or that just is sort of after the fact down the road here when things are better? So I, I think context matters because this is also at a time where I was working as a hospital chaplain at the only level one trauma hospital in uh, in Nashville, and I was in the emergency department in the trauma unit. And so I actually found at that particular moment that going through this time of deep struggle and despair helped me connect um, emotionally and, and from, a, from a chaplain, from a ministerial perspective with the people who were in crisis, that I, that I was also sort of allowing myself to be in this place of, of struggle actually served me really well in that in that time of ministry had I had a different job I may not I may not have felt in that moment like this was good for anything until I actually got through it uh, but at that particular moment it, it felt like it actually served me to be in a place of real difficulty personally at the same time I was serving people who were you know we, we always used to say it's just another day in the worst day of somebody's life this mm-hmm. is life on the trauma unit and um, and so I, I found use for it in, in that context. Yeah, so that, that whole phrase of just another day and in in somebody else's worst day, that, this is one of the things that has always frustrated me around the healthcare world is that it becomes so easy to accept that this is a terrible day for somebody else. Yeah. And it in some ways prevents us from truly entering into it. We, we put up a wall and act like, it's just another day. Yeah. Um, but yeah. it's not just another day for that person. Right. Um, Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's hear some music. Yeah, I think it's time to bring Kirk, Kirk along to oh, uh, yeah. make us all raise our spirits. <laughs>
We are back, and we're talking about the importance of owning our stories, which includes those moments of struggle in our lives. We know we live in a society that, that can be pretty obsessed with perfection, where oftentimes we're left feeling like we can't do enough or have enough and that we ourselves are not enough. What I like about Brown's work is that she's always pushing those who follow her work to be whole people. She uses that terminology a lot, integrated people. Her tagline she signs off from her podcast or from her writing uh, on her blog is, stay awkward, brave, and kind. And I always find myself gravitating toward the awkward part of that. That word strikes me as a counterpoint to perfection, to be imperfect, which all of us are, is often awkward. Back in college, when I was majoring in psychology, I recall a professor telling our class that we so rarely send our whole selves out into the world, and that instead we send a representative of ourselves who is curated to the particular context or audience. In psychology, there's a lot of language about the different masks we wear when we are unwilling or feel unsafe to show our true selves, sometimes for good reason. But what's wrong with that? Well, sometimes nothing. Sometimes for personal safety reasons, it's okay to not be our whole selves all of the time. But what I think Brown is getting us to push for with owning our own stories is realizing that those pieces of ourselves and our personal histories that we feel we need to keep hidden or cut off from the rest of our stories are probably something that we're giving too much power mm. or are something that are something that's associated with harmful things that we've come to believe about ourselves. Brene Brown says that when we own our stories, we are agreeing to wrestle with our feelings and with hard emotions, and that it's not always easy, but that the alternative, denying parts of our story and disengaging from the emotions tied to them, means choosing to live our lives in the dark, with no accountability, no learning, no personal growth. And that should be the scarier of the two options. Mm -hmm. So part of what makes owning the more difficult parts of our stories difficult is that it necessitates us showing some grace towards ourselves and being gentle enough with ourselves to process the negative emotions associated with those memories. Why do you think so many of us, including all of us here who work in professions where grace is a pretty huge component of what we do, have a hard time being gentle and grace-filled with our own stories sometimes. Because we're supposed to have it all together, right? <laughs> Who says? Wait, wait a minute. You don't have it all together? <laughs> <laughs> don't tell anyone. Man, I need, to, I need to find better people to do this with because I, I thought y'all had it all together. <laughs> right, but that's the, that's the story that's told. Um, and, that, and the story that I think we've bought into in a sense of, of clergy and faith leaders is that you know, you come, you come to us, you external person come to us because we have some sort of greater insight and we have it all together. Um, and I have to live into that lie in order to validate my usefulness. Uh, and so if I don't have it all together, if I'm not perfectly productive, uh, if I don't, if I haven't hit all the milestones and benchmarks of what a successful life is supposed to look like, then somehow I am less adequate and less useful to for for what it is I, I'm purposed to do. Um, at least that's the way I might articulate it today. 
Um, and so why would I show grace toward myself if, in a sense, I'm failing based on these made-up standards? Um, and it's something that has to be unlearned, uh, mm. that I'm still unlearning. Uh, so maybe we should go to Scott, who's had more time to unlearn. <laughs> well, yeah, so I do, even though I'm maybe not ready to talk about all my uh, frailties on the radio, I actually think I'm pretty good about doing that when I'm dealing with somebody who is struggling mightily with whatever that situation is. And, you know, I'm I'm pretty much a an open book over my own failings in that situation to be able mm-hmm. to sort of say, hey, I've been there myself and here's how it was and here's maybe what I've learned Um, as opposed to just, you know, coming across as my life is perfect and I've had, had no struggles Um, because I I assure you I have. So, um, you know, it it is, I I will, you know, talk to me just personally. I mean, that unfortunately many people do think my life has been perfect and there's never been any struggles. And, uh, that is actually hard for me at times to, you know, how to interact with somebody who sees me in a way that's not necessarily the reality of, yeah. of, of, of who I am mm-hmm. and trying to find a way to be honest and forthright at, at every turn is something that I try my best every day to, to deal with, but it's not always easy. Yeah. I, I think what I love about the use of that word awkward that Brene Brown uses is when I think back on times where I've made connections with people, I find that I connect more in the moments of awkward than I do in the moments where everybody's acting all perfect. Like that there's Mm -hmm. something about that, that being real. um, And that being real means not always being cool and smooth and having it all together, but that in those moments where we're just able to kind of be real with each other, that that's where real connection forms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I do um, want us to take a few minutes here to, to recognize that we, we are recording today uh, at a time when the war in Ukraine is unfolding. We, we have no idea what the, the future of this would be. And, um, and just asking the question, you know, here in Memphis, you know, what, how is this our ability to be authentic and, and and how how do we see what is happening here, which is I consider one of the great moral challenges that we've faced in our lifetime. I mean, you know, it's well, how are we supposed to make any sense of this? I mean, it's a hard question in the sense that right we're in day what four, five, four, four five, yeah, right. Um, so it's beginning to it's still unfolding. Um, but it's unfolding based on, as we're talking about owning our stories on a false story, right? These narratives and myths that are being spun around what Ukraine is and who Ukraine is and their history and um, who belongs to whom, right? And all the, and, and the story that is being spun to justify an all-out assault and, and slaughtering of a people. Um, and what so the answer to what we can do in Memphis, um, of course, we've been praying, uh, of course, we've been speaking up, but it is in, I think also, what stories are we telling here that aren't all that precise, um, that we can true up, as it were, that can help us to do a better job of 
alleviating some of the wars that are still being fought in this city. Um, but I think it's also taking a stance to see the warning signs um, and to not turn a blind eye because there were warning signs over and over and over, I think, leading into this conflict. Um, and we take a stance, draw a proverbial line to recognize when we have to speak up and send aid and send resources to say we won't let this happen again. Um, because, you know, if I cast a vision, right, this might be what war looks like much more the insidiousness of it that leads into what feels like a random springing up is just this slow ideological turning that allows for the ground to be tilled to prepare for war. Um, and so what stories do we tell? Um, what books do we read? <laughs> what do we teach our children? And how do we try to tell a truer story both here and abroad? Mm -hmm. um, that's an imprecise answer. Yep. And it's not all that practical, but... That's yeah. what I've got today. You know, I also think, I mean, you know, across the world, President Zelensky has been now held up as a a true hero in so many ways. And, I mean, it is remarkable to just watch this guy out there putting his life on the line at every turn as opposed to, uh, I think most of us would have left Ukraine a long time ago. But I think about it all the time. The guy is a comedian. You know, it, that's what his profession was and mm -hmm. decides he's going to run for president and, and, and turns into, you know, you just never know what the reality of a person is. I mean, you know, part of why he's so good with these one-liners is because he made a career at at making jokes and trying to get your attention about it. But then, you know, it's just... I find it so awe-inspiring. You know, he may not be what we're seeing in person, but I don't think you can hide the reality of the the, the power of this man uh, who, I, you know, and then this whole craziness. I wish Micah was here to talk into this because, you know, Putin talking about the denazification of Ukraine when he is a Jew. <laughs> um, so Zelensky yeah. is a Jew. And, um, mm -hmm. yeah. I just think there's so much for us to, to learn uh, through this horrible experience I, of the war. I think it goes to what we're talking about today in part, right? He's a comedian turned president, but he has never allowed, you know, who he is at his core to be separated from what it is that he's doing. So he's integrating all of the different parts of who he is into his presidency and now into this moment. It allows him to show up in a really authentic way to say, I'm committed to my country, I'm committed to my people, we will not back down, in such a way that also inspires not only a nation but a world to support him. And so the power of that kind of integrated authenticity that doesn't hide or, or try to smooth out the fact that there are bombs going off in the city, right? That doesn't try to smooth over the tension and the frustration of, of the political climate, but leans into it um, with, a, with his own comedic training, with his authenticity, and gives us a view of what it looks like to be courageous um, under incredible pressure. And and what if we were Russians? You know, what what would be our response if if we were Russians? I mean, that I've read a number of places that in in some ways at the heart of this war is actually uh, religion. 
Yeah. Um, and the, the difference between the Russian Orthodox Church and the, mm-hmm. the Ukrainian Church is that you're, you know, when the Ukrainian Church was created? Mm-hmm. 2018, th- there, was, there was no Ukrainian Orthodox Church until yeah. 2018. They had several d- different Orthodox um, con- uh, denominations, but that came together in 2018. And this, you know, rift between the the Russian Orthodox Church and all. It's just this idea of, you know, we're all under Mother Russia through the Orthodox Church mm-hmm. is something I think we in the West h- hardly can get our head around. Yeah. I, I read an article, I probably the same one as you, by Diana Butler Bass that talked about this, this is the same argument that can go back to the Holy Roman Empire, mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's, there's you know, strings that, that tie this all together. I, I think what I have been feeling over the last four days is really an overwhelming sense of obligation uh, to make sure that the information I'm consuming comes from valid sources, because, you know, we've talked about how narrative has been so powerful in trying to to shape what's happening over there. And even across the news networks, you know, this is not unfamiliar to, to us after the last five years or so, but the, the, the narratives being spun even on the media that we consume here in the U.S. tell very different stories about what's happening over there and why it's happening and whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. And, and so I, I feel the once again, you know, something's being politicized and we can't just have objective conversations about um, something horrific that's affecting people's lives yeah. right now as we speak. Well, I also feel that um, this moment uh, at a time where the pandemic, you know, pray to God is true that it is subsiding, um, becomes a time for us to go back to church, to re-enter our synagogues and our mosque, um, because I think what, while we've become very good at doing uh, Zoom uh, through faith communities, it is not the same as being in person uh, to be able to hold hands, offer prayers, find a way for us to, uh, as people of God, confront what appears to be real evil in the world. Yeah. You know, not not to personify that in Putin, but that there is uh, an an evil going on here that makes it time for us to go back to church. Yeah. Um, I feel really strongly about that, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, whether we wear a mask or not is really not nearly as important as it's time for us to come back and and rethink what what church is all about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and it fits with our. That's this topic of owning your own stories. I was having a conversation with a friend over the weekend and said, yeah, it, this, is, this was the, the conversation we were going to be having. And she said, well, good thing it's Ash Wednesday this week, because that's all about owning your own story. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. It's almost time to get ashy. It's almost <laughs> time to get ashy. Um, and to remember our limits, to remember that we are caught up in this inescapable amount of grace that at times leads us into really tense situations of wilderness and of wandering. And ultimately, um, at least 
as a Christian, I believe, brings us to this point where we bear witness to the fact that life belongs to God mm-hmm. and that death is conquered mm-hmm. and God continues to bring us and pull us into life. But we've got to go through the ashes yeah. and those ashes help to define us and mark us. And we ought not be ashamed of that. Yes, we have, we have 40 days within the Christian world to try to uh, focus on you know who we are as children of God in order to then live into what hopefully God has called us to be. Yeah. With that, I think it might just be time for music. Yeah, more, more Kirk. Here we go. Thank you, Kirk.
So we're going to turn to Joshua to close us out with a meditation, but all this conversation to say that I appreciate Brene Brown's work for reminding us that there is usefulness in the struggle. There is usefulness in owning those parts of our stories that are not clean and polished and perfect, um, and that it's sometimes in those moments that we actually find the most significant human connections. Joshua. And human connections, or really being human, is a good transition to today's meditation. Um, I'm taking a line from Kate Bowler's recent book, No Cure for Being Human. Um, one line in which she says, Should we hate the evidence that we have survived? Should we hate the evidence that we have survived? I think of one of the activities that I do with our staff here when I'm able to spend time, particularly our clinical staff, and it's a blessing of the hands. Um, and I begin it by asking them to look at their hands, to really study them for a moment, especially since we have that saying, I know you like the back of my hand, or I know that like the back of my hand. How often have we looked and stared at our own hands that sometimes carry scars, that sometimes could use a bit of moisture that sometimes are cracked and imperfect or these very bodies that we inhabit. These bodies that have hurt knees and joints, these bodies that ache, these bodies that hunger and thirst, these bodies that remind us that we are human and there's no cure for being human. There's no story that we can tell. There is no narrative that we can spin that can avoid the fact that we are human and we bear the evidence that sometimes it has been hard to survive. And so I ask you to ponder, what evidence do you have that you have survived, that you have been taught to hate? What scars, what wounds, what things that we've been taught to cover up are really evidence of your survival? And how can you learn to love them? How can you learn to tell the full story? Sit with that for a while. And we'll see you next month. <laughs>